you were alluding to this earlier when you were talking about you know your own religious upbringing and looking mm -hmm. towards uh, the Chinese in you know a negative light from a religious standpoint. Mm -hmm. In what ways can we directly draw a connection from the rhetoric of that era, the 19th century, to the anti? Asian American and Pacific Islanders among yeah. many white evangelicals today. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout-out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Trip Hawthorne, Cindy Foldenlore, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. This podcast is presented to you by Central Seminary. A historic Baptist seminary founded in Kansas that now is diverse, cross-cultural, and ecumenical with a significant global footprint. Leading with the values of community, empathy, growth, and tenacity, Central Seminary equips students with the theological knowledge, spiritual insight, and practical skills needed to lead in an ever-changing world. We cultivate an inclusive, multi-language community of reflection where critical thinking and discernment are welcomed and encouraged. Central offers numerous graduate degrees and certificates, including Doctorate of Ministry in Creative Leadership, Master of Arts in Counseling, Certificates in Chaplaincy Studies, and Peace and Justice Ministries, and much more. Most programs are offered fully online. To learn more, visit cbts.edu or search for Central Seminary Kansas City. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Dr. Catherine Jen Lum. The Associate Professor of Religious Studies in collaboration with the Center of Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity at Stanford University, Dr. Jin Lum focuses on uh, lived ramifications of religious belief. She has authored several books, including Damnations, Hell in America from a Revolution to Reconstruction, and a new book that will be the focus of our conversation today. Uh, Catherine, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, I would just as a person who's an East Coaster and a person who has friends on the West Coast, specifically California, can you just describe for us today what the weather is like, just so we all can <laughs> collectively be uh, jealous on, on your behalf? You know, today is actually quite hot here. <laughs> it's, um, we're in the middle of a heat wave. Um, so it's, it's about 90 degrees right now. I guess the good thing is that it's, it's a dry heat, um, <laughs> but, but it's sunny out. 
Uh, it's nice, you know, this is not, this is not the time of year yet when the um, big fires and you know, smoke and all of that um, comes into the area. It's really, it's been, it's been getting worse every year, actually. So I guess that's the trade-off, right? <laughs> you know, perfect weather yeah. year round, and then you'll have, you know, that's right. There's not there. enough rain. Yeah. There's just not enough rain. So, but I appreciate now, the sun. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you, uh, uh, you know, West Coaster for life, or is this uh, kind of a new experience for you? <laughs> no, I am born and raised on the West Coast. I actually grew up about an um, hour and a half from Stanford. Um, so yeah, this is this is my home. I left for, um, I don't know, maybe about a decade for graduate work and um, you know a job early on, but I'm back here and hopefully back here to stay. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us, you know, I'm always fascinated that I'm going to talk about the PhDs just around their studies and why they chose the areas um, that they did. So why for you, religious studies specifically connected yeah. to race and ethnicity? Yeah. So, you know, I didn't actually start off in religious studies. It's, um, it's kind of interesting. I, I've all of my degrees all the way through were in history and I, I never even took a class in religious studies, <laughs> a class that was solely religious studies, at least. Um, until I, you know, got my first job and started teaching them. So I, I did do work on religious history. So I'm trained as a religious historian. Um, and how I got into that, I mean, I guess, I guess you could say, so I started off working on the history of um, Chinese immigration. So I've always been interested in history as a way of kind of understanding, you know, where I came from, um, understanding how the world came to be. But then partway through my college experience, my, um, my father ended up getting very sick and uh, ended up being diagnosed with terminal cancer and given just a very short amount of time to live. Um, so I ended up transferring to a different college and um, actually finishing up college at Stanford. And I didn't, so for one thing, I just didn't have enough time at that point to learn the languages that I needed to learn to work on East Asian history. Uh, but then for another thing, I just found myself getting really interested in the history behind how Americans dealt with death, um, and in particular, how they did not deal with death. You know, it seemed in, in many ways to me that, that we just don't know how to talk about it or how to deal with it as a society. And so I was really interested in that. And so I started researching the history of death, the, the history of attitudes towards death, um, which led to the history of religion um, and uh, Yes, you know, so that's part of the reason why I wrote my first book about hell, because I was interested in ideas about what happens after death. Um, so I guess you could say that's, you know, kind of the personal academic story behind, behind how I came to this subject specifically. Um, but there's also, you know, there's also the story of how I was raised in a fairly conservative religious tradition. Um, and, you know, this is a tradition that does not ordain women. And I had always been interested in questions around um, again, like why things are the way they are, uh, interested in theological questions, um, but knew that I, you know, in my tradition that I was raised in, I couldn't pursue that um, in the ministry. And so I think one of the reasons also why I went into this is to ask these kinds of questions uh, from an academic perspective. So you have a, a new book, Heathen. Uh, this is a historical examination of the religious and social mindset of I would say more specifically, white Americans to dehumanize others through the mechanism of religion. You wrote uh, the heathen category has not only 
racialized those bearing the label as unable to care for themselves. It also shored up the self-understanding of white Protestant Americans as people who hold themselves to be the heathen's savior. Mm -hmm. uh, walk us through the, the conception of this book. Yeah, so you mean how I came to write this book and um, what I'm trying to do with it? Is that? Yeah, I mean, shift, shift yeah. from hell to, to yeah. this. Uh, <laughs> heavy lifting here in your first two books. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, it's not that big a shift from hell to the heathen, actually. I'm, in some ways, I think this book is like volume two of um, themes that I started exploring with the first book. Because when you think about the category of the heathen, it's really, um, they are people who are thought to be damned, right? So they are supposed to be bound for hell. Um, and so, yeah, I guess how I came to write the book, I mean, again, I was interested in these questions around death and religion. Uh, and what comes afterwards, but also as a, um, I'm a Chinese American, um, the daughter of immigrants, and I was always raised to believe that my ancestors in China were heathens, right? Like I believed that um, they were damned, that I had a you know, responsibility to um, spread the gospel myself. Uh, and, I, and I also thought that I was lucky. You know, I was very lucky that I had been born into a Christian family that I lived in America. Um, but, you know, this feeling of luck and this feeling of guilt, like I write in the book that I could be, childhood me could be a primary source for historian me and actually, you know, adult me could still be a primary source for historian me because I continue to grapple with these kinds of questions and these issues. Um, so, yeah, that's, I guess, how the book came to be around these questions of what does it mean to see somebody as a religious other? And what is the relationship between religious othering and racial othering? Um, and that's really the, the question that's at the heart of the book. So. Well, Manifest Destiny yeah. is a term that most people have heard, but maybe have never fully um, have defined nor understood. Walk us through the roots of this ideal and its impact socially, politically, and more importantly, religiously on mm -hmm. westward expansion and the annihilation of indigenous people. And of course, we'll get to in just a bit, um, the treatment um, and enslavement of, of Chinese yeah. immigrants. So yeah, so Manifest Destiny, that's, that's a really interesting question um, because, so the cover of the book actually has an image on it that I think really echoes or really it predates um, the famous image uh, that, that people think of when they think about Manifest Destiny, which is John Gast's American Progress. It's that image of um, a woman supposed to represent America kind of flying through the sky. She's stringing behind her telegraph lines. Um, a train is following her. So she represents progress, technological progress, um, education. And then in front of her, you see um, indigenous people who are fleeing before the light that she's bringing. Right, so the assumption behind this idea is that Americans, white Americans, are um, providentially blessed and uh, and have the responsibility to spread um, progress, technology, Christianity to the rest of the world. And so, with Manifest Destiny, it's you know across the continent. But on the image that's on the front cover of the book, it's the entire world. And um, so that image has instead of uh, an angel or you know woman representing America, it's um, an angel blowing the trumpet of the Lord, holding the Bible, and she's flying over a scene that shows different vignettes from the so-called heathen world. So you have people who have accepted the gospel, 
Uh, and then you have people who rejected it and are essentially, you know, dying or cowering before the light. Um, yeah, so, so this idea that Americans are supposed to be the ones bringing um, salvation to the rest of the world, I write in the book, forms a kind of, I call it like a get out of jail free ticket or get out of jail free card that has justified all sorts of horrible things in the name of bringing salvation. So you, you mentioned um, dispossession of indigenous people, um, enslavement of people of African descent, um, annexation of Hawaii, you know, all of these things um, have been justified in the, the name of, of progress. You wrote uh, the Anglo-American Save the Heathen Impulse uh, drew from a much longer history of ideas inherited from centuries of philosophical and theological discussion, traveling, writing, and comparative colonial enterprises. As the English ventured into the overseas empire, they drew from the Greco-Roman precedent, scriptural authority, and church teachings, and the Spanish example. I've heard some argue that uh, the Christian stance on dominating the other comes from uh, you know, 1095, Pope Urban II makes perhaps the most influential speech in the Middle Ages, giving rise to the Crusades, calling for Christians to um, go to war against the, the Muslims to reclaim the Holy Land. Um, then I've also heard others argue that Pope Alexander VI issues the, the papal bull decree of the uh, in which he authorizes uh, Spain and Portugal to, uh, to colonialize the mm -hmm. uh, Americas and its native peoples. Um, right. So where does this particular theological mindset of othering to the point of subjugation and annihilation yeah. come from within the Eurocentric branch of Christianity? So that's a really good question. And one of the things that the book tries to do is to not actually try to pinpoint a specific date or a specific moment when this discourse emerges, but to just show how, how long lived it has been really tracing back to um, you know, as you mentioned, I, I start with the Greco-Romans, um, I look at uh, biblical examples, and then I look at how these themes have just reiterated through time. So I guess I'm less interested in pointing to like particular turning points, um, and more in looking at how this figure of the heathen arises from, so early in, you know, the Greco-Roman material in the book, um, I look at how the pagan uh, was originally understood to be like the people who dwelled in the countrysides, who did not become Christianized um, and were understood to be like backwards and uncouth. And, you know, they stayed worshiping their old gods. Um, the heathen emerges from this idea of the pagan. The root of the word heathen is the heath. So it's the, again, the people who lived on the outskirts of society, who were living on the heaths um, and who held on to the old European um, heathen gods. So this idea of the heathen, uh, you know, it starts off like in a very kind of European context and then it spreads. Um, so as Europeans um, learn more about the world and learn more about people in the world, they take this concept of the heathen and they turn it into this like broad um, umbrella or broad blanket that covers much of the rest of the world. And that raises issues because, um, you know, as they are learning more about the world, they're learning more about the world's diversity, that this category of heathen is a very kind of like blunt force instrument. Um, it's, um, it creates a kind of binary between the heathen and the Christian. And so they try to cast this like broad binary over the entire world into group, a bunch of different people, a bunch of different places under the heading of heathen. Well, you, you, 
you've kind of given us a framework within the book, you know, the Greeks uh, you laid out where the Barbaroi, the Romans had a term, paganists, mm -hmm. the Germanics, the heathen, and yeah. the English, they were savages. So talk to us about the etymology of these words and how they've affected religious rhetoric today. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I've gotten a little bit into the etymology um, already in terms of the pagan and the heathen. Um, the savage is a little bit different. Savage and the barbarian are a little bit different from the pagan and the heathen in the sense that the pagan and the heathen are very much connected to religion, right? So it's the people who wander in the heaths, the people who um, are doing uncouth and backwards things, but it's because of their religion, their wrong religion, that they're supposed to be doing these things. Savage and barbarian are terms that are more commonly connected to a kind of civilizational hierarchy. Um, and so one can be a heathen without being a quote unquote savage, right? So one can be a heathen and belong to um, what, you know, might be claimed to be a high standard of civilizational development or something. You know, I, I find these kinds of civilizational ladders to be highly problematic, obviously. Um, but I think that's the key difference is that civilization is seen as a kind of ladder of development, whereas the heathen, the pagan is seen as like, again, a binary between everyone who fits under this category of wrong religion uh, and the Christian. So yeah, and then in terms of the developments of the term over time, I mean, nowadays, you don't really hear the term heathen thrown about very much heathen or pagan. Um, if you do hear the term, it's probably more in regards to like neo-heathenism or neo-paganism. Um, but I think, and I argue in the book, that there are terms that have developed that are kind of euphemisms for the heathen that mean essentially the same thing. So like third world, um, developing world. Um, in a Christian context, you might hear terms like frontier nations or the 1040 window or the unreached peoples. And these are all, I think, ways of referring to the same idea that there's you know, a mass of people out there who all can be fit under the same category or the same heading of people who need help. The dehumanizing of others by religion is, is not just a, you know, as we look back at this historical thing, it's not just a tool for enslavement and subjugation and annihilation. It's also a weapon for exclusion. Mm -hmm. um, in the book, you do a deep dive into the American Christians' anti-Chinese stance in the 19th century, especially mm -hmm. in this westward, westward expansion. Uh, take us a little deeper into the religious rhetoric of this era yeah. towards the Chinese. Yeah, so this is actually something that I've been interested in for a really long time. So as an undergrad, I started um, working on religion uh, in the Gold Rush era in California, and I was looking at um, missionaries work with Euro-Americans and with Chinese immigrants at the time. And I was just really struck by the language of heathenism that kept on being used to refer to the Chinese. Um, and I was especially struck by the fact that the Chinese were referred to as heathen, even when they converted to Christianity. So you would see like a missionary saying something about a heathen convert, for instance, and that would be like a Chinese person. Um, and then at the same time, missionaries would like lament the bad behavior of Euro-American Christians, but they would never call them heathens. They would call them dead Christians. Um, so I was really struck by that kind of language because it seemed to be tied to me to the racialization of the Chinese. So in this book, yeah, I do a deep dive into the era of Chinese exclusion and to the language of heathenism that's used to justify it. And I basically argue in the book that this language actually matters, right? It's not, obviously Chinese exclusion has, you know, everything to do with um, labor, with the economy, 
um, with perceived competition over jobs. But that doesn't mean that the language around heathenism is unimportant or that it's just like an epiphenomenal justification for what's fundamentally about money. Um, what I saw in the material is that the labeling of the Chinese as heathen really, really showed a deep concern about America itself, about white Christian America, and a real deep concern that the arrival of so-called Chinese heathens might threaten to heathenize the nation itself. And I think what this reveals is that there's a lot of anxiety about like the, um, what is it, the, a lot of anxiety about the sturdiness, I guess you could say, of the American Christian, white American Christian identity, um, and a lot of worry that it could actually um, easily be converted to something else, converted to heathenism. Um, and so, so yeah, in that chapter, I look at um, arguments about why Chinese heathenism is incompatible with American Christian identity. Heathens are said to worship their ancestors or spirits, or they're said to worship anything but the one true God. And so for the Chinese, the idea is that they spend so much effort and money on worshiping their ancestors that they don't do enough to improve life for people in the here and now. And they are supposedly then willing to live for very cheap, um, to eat, you know, I mean, people accuse them of eating rats and terrible things at this time um, because they don't need too much money for themselves. They're saving it all for their ancestors. And then the worry is if they spread this kind of heathenism to Americans, Americans are going to end up in the same um, kind of backwards um, cycle of, you know, never, never progressing towards the future. This podcast is presented to you by CBF Church Benefits. At CBB, your benefits are our ministry. For 25 years, CBF Church Benefits has proudly served the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, providing retirement benefits and insurance services for CBF-affiliated church ministries and staff, along with CBF field personnel in Atlanta and around the world. CBB helps simplify the administrative burdens of your retirement plan, allowing you and your ministry staff to focus on your ministry. CBB can also help you maintain your overall benefit package, including life and disability benefit and international medical insurance for international missions. Through generous philanthropic support, CBF Church Benefits recently launched the Financial Wellness Initiative. This new initiative offers ministers the opportunity to receive financial relief grants, financial education experience, and financial planning services. Please visit CBF Church Benefits website at churchbenefits.org to learn more about CBB, our benefits, and the financial wellness opportunities designed to help you thrive in your mission and ministry. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You were alluding to this earlier, 
when you were talking about, you know, your own religious upbringing and looking mm -hmm. towards uh, the Chinese and, you know, a negative light from a religious standpoint, mm -hmm. in what ways can we directly draw a connection from the rhetoric of that era, the 19th century, to the anti-Asian American and Pacific Islanders among yeah. many white evangelicals today? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, one of the one of the main points that I try to um, argue for in the book is that history is not, it's not just about change, right? It's not just about change over time. It's also about continuity. It's about repetition. It's about these same kinds of tropes and ideas just happening again and again and again. And, you know, I finished the book um, just as the pandemic was starting as anti-Asian hate was on the rise again. Um, and I just kept seeing, you know, the same kind of language, the same kinds of accusations being leveled against China, against um, Chinese Americans even, right? It's like this lack of um, differentiation between Asians and Asian Americans, this grouping of people all together under the same heading. Um, you know, when the pandemic first started, there was all this deflection to blame China for starting it, to blame unsanitary eating habits, um, weird magical beliefs, uh, you know, Chinese disease, just all of this was, um, to me, it's, it's such a direct echo of the late 19th century. And as a historian, it's really kind of sobering to see how little things change <laughs> sometimes. It's, it's fascinating, you know, and I wonder, you know, I don't know if you're willing to lean into the personal journey kind of you went through and I don't, I don't know. I mean, kind of the, the unpacking or the deconstruction of how religion from your own personal perspective kind of created this mentality within you and yeah. what life circumstances led you to, to recognize this, obviously, you know, from a, from a historical PhD perspective, but more from a, I guess, from a social and personal experience. Oh, to lean into the personal. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's hard. Like I said, I'm still, still trying to figure it out. I'm still a primary source for myself. Um, I think the reason why I do this work is because I haven't figured it out. I don't, I don't know what the answers are. You know, I, I just, um, I've been in conversation recently with colleagues who are ethicists and theologians. Um, and we've been trying to talk about how historians and theologians and ethicists can bring our work more deeply into conversation. Because one of the things that I've really felt or really you know, kind of pushed up against as a historian is the inability to, um, to make kind of normative claims about the research that I do. Like, I'm just not trained to do that work as a historian. Um, but as a person, you know, as a human being, like I do want to, I do want this work to do something in the world. I do want it to, to help us to think about, you know, what does it mean to go out there and claim that you're helping someone else? Um, what does it mean to believe that people are damned without your intervention? Um, when I give talks about this work in academic audiences, um, I've given talks to like students, for instance, students always come up to me afterwards and they say things like, gosh, you know, I, um, I just signed up to join the Peace Corps or I just signed up to take part in this 
um, you know, overseas project to help build houses or whatever, like, what should I do now? Because you've just told me in this talk that, you know, all of that traces back to this kind of like white savior mentality. Um, what do I do? And I, <laughs> I've often given them a kind of, um, you know, historians cop out responsive. I'm a historian, like I just, I give you the history, but I don't give you like the normative claim about what you should do. Um, but I guess what I hope will come out of this and what's come out of it for me at a personal standpoint is kind of a deep sense of humility and a deep sense that there's so much that I don't know. And that for me is a real change, I think, from the kind of church context that I grew up in where the answers were all there, right? It's, it was all in the Bible. The Bible is the literal word of God. Like human interpretation is not, um, that's not a factor because <laughs> the answers are just there. And there's a lot of confidence in that. And I think where I've ended up now is just with a sense of, of not knowing and being okay with not knowing. Um, and yeah, I guess I, I hope that people reading the book might leave it with that kind of sense as well, a sense of humility of not knowing and of asking questions and having hard conversations. All right, let's take the spotlight off your personal perspective, or personal experience, <laughs> I guess, you. if you're not your personal perspective, your personal uh, experience. Um, so you wrote, uh, the white Protestant American who professionalized the discipline in the late 19th century prided themselves on being progressive history makers, seeing the blessings of Providence and their technolo technological inventions and world conquering uh, ambitions. They imagined the heathen world by contrast as a lethargic realm of unchanging pitables made such by their diluted and time-wasted devotion to false idols. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there and to kind of, I guess this is, I guess, more the, the psychological yeah. mindset of, of the religion at the time. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I alluded to this a little bit earlier when I talked about how history, I think, is not just about change. It's about continuity. Um, but I think that, honestly, uh, the ways that the discipline of history has developed traces back to this late 19th century period when the discipline was professionalizing. Um, but religion was still very much a part of how people understood history and um, the ways that, you know, quote unquote, development happened in the world. So to try to understand this kind of psychology, um, I guess the idea was that heathens, again, like when I uh, mentioned the example with the Chinese, heathens wasted their time and their energy um, and their money uh, worshiping false idols, false spirits, ancestors. Um, because they did that, and because they did not understand the biblical commandment to, um, you know, tame nature, domesticate uh, the animals, um, you know, make the wilderness blossom, they failed to do anything productive to their land, right? So because they then failed to do anything productive to their land, they weren't innovating new technologies, uh, and they were not pushing history forward. By contrast, Protestants who understood the nature of nature, who understood nature's God, uh, and who understood the responsibility that that God gave them, um, had developed all of these new technologies. So in the 19th century, you know, this is late 19th century, this is a period of celebration of the railroad, steam engines, um, agricultural technologies, uh, et cetera, that were really seen as pushing humanity forward. Um, and so if you look at like history textbooks from the late 19th century, they're like very um, blatant in saying, you know, this is the history of Caucasians who are the world's historical people. 
Um, and, and everyone else kind of belongs to this like amorphous, ahistorical kind of anthropological framework of people who don't change in time. You know, yeah. God, there's so many questions I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is, you know, this is, this is the reality is it's not a, a mindset of centuries past. In fact, one of the earliest features right. of the book is an excerpt from an American missionary in 1971 who wrote that the difference between, quote, the civilization and heathenism is sky high and star far. In what ways has the, oh gosh, this, <laughs> this worldview of the past, yeah. you know, how is that being lived out today um, mm. in, in ways that people probably aren't anticipating? Yeah, I think it's being lived out in a lot of different ways today. I mean, um, yeah, when I when I found that document from the 1970s, I was like, wow, this is really, um, I, I guess I wasn't surprised because I'd been researching it for so long already at that point, And I'd seen these echoes of the language of heathenism, you know, well into the 20th century, well into the present. Um, but again, like I mentioned earlier, people tend to use euphemisms for that now and not, not to say things as overt as that missionary in the 1970s. But I, I mean, I see so many resonances of this idea remaining with us today. And I guess that I would say that it's, it's not that easy for a history that is like centuries deep to, to change. Um, so yeah, so I see, you know, I see resonances of this idea in the historical profession, <laughs> to be honest, you know, I was trained in history. Um, and I think the imperative to write about change over time remains in that profession. Um, I see resonances of it in, you know, contemporary humanitarian organizations um, across the spectrum, really. Um, I see resonances of it in the Silicon Valley, honestly, which is where I live. Um, there's a section in the book where I talk about a, um, a tech um, gala that I attended when I was writing the book that was celebrating innovators in the Silicon Valley who were um, changing the world and you know, doing good through technology. And the, the ways that these um, innovators were celebrated and the ways that they were talking about doing good in the world just like directly echoed the language that I saw in the 19th century about saving the heathens, saving the heathen world. Um, <clears throat> again, I think it also echoes in language about like the third world, about the us versus them. I mean, in the, the recent conflict <clears throat> that's happening in Ukraine, the media coverage of that initially, like it was so resonant with this language of like the civilized versus the uncivilized, the third world, you know, Europe. Um, people were expressing shock that violence and war could happen in a country where people were quote unquote civilized, right? It was Europe. How could this be happening in Europe? And the clear implication there is this should be happening in the third world, right? The former heathen world, um, not where people supposedly look like us. And that's, you know, that was language that people actually used, like people with blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, so yeah, it's all over the place. I mentioned COVID earlier. It's, it's there too. Um, it's really kind of, again, like it's sobering to see how much it is still with us. One of the most profound takeaways from the book is a historical and theological analysis that the ideas about religion inform ideas about race. Mm -hmm. For those that have not had a chance to to read the book, can can you kind of explain this this concept or, for lack of better terms, this fact? <laughs> so, what is the relationship between religion and race? Um, I think that when people think about race, they tend to think about skin color, 
they tend to think about um, socially constructed meanings that are attached to supposed physical differences between people. This is a modern understanding of race that emerges out of the enlightenment, out of attempts to you know, classify people based on supposedly observable differences. But I argue in the book that this is not the only way that race works. So here I'm really inspired by um, a couple other scholars, Sylvester Johnson and Barner Hesse, who have argued that race is really, it's a colonial formation. It's, uh, it's about colonial governance and it's about a division of the world into Europeans who claim themselves to be the governors of non-Europeans who are the people to be governed. Um, and if you understand race in this way as a way of colonizing the world and breaking the world into the colonizers and the colonized, then the category of the heathen is incredibly significant to its development. And it predates the enlightenment, right? It predates this kind of scientific um, or pseudo-scientific attempt to classify people according to observable differences. So religion is, you know, it's, it's changeable. It's not something that is um, thought to be inherent necessarily. And so for, for a long time, scholars saw religious othering as not the same as racial othering because the heathen could convert, right? The heathen could be baptized. Um, but I argue in the book that actually the idea that the heathen can change really underlies this process of colonial racialization because for people to claim that they can be the governors of others is for them to suggest that these others can be helped, that they can be they can be and they should be changed, they can be and they should be educated, right? So that like almost relies on a notion of this changeable heathen who needs to be taught. Um, and that is a dynamic that, you know, as I write in the book, um, begins very early on and continues uh, well into the present day. And that has helped to create this figure of the superior white Protestant savior vis-a-vis um, -vis everyone else. So it's not that I'm saying that, you know, racial hierarchies based on supposed physical differences are like non-existent. I mean, they absolutely exist. I just argue in the book that are, there are different kinds of racialization and that racial hierarchies can be used um, in certain circumstances where different racial groups are pit against each other, right? It's a kind of divide and conquer strategy. Um, whereas the binary of the colonized versus the colonizer, the heathen versus the Christian, is a different kind of racialization that clumps together, you know, everyone but the white Protestants um, as, you know, below um, what I refer to as the heathen ceiling. And so it's a, a different kind of, of racialization that sets up um, white supremacy as, you know, the opposite of everyone else. But yeah, they, they work together and um, they're not, yeah, again, it's, it's not that one is not um, important. It's just that I think we've tended to overlook this kind of religious racial clumping um, in the emphasis on race as skin color and hierarchy. Yeah, these are these are obviously difficult conversations, re-examining the past and investigating the present. Yeah. But but why is talking about the disease of racism in the past and present so important for our living legacy of religion today, especially Christianity? Oh, that's that's such an important question. Um, I guess I would say first of all that the um, the disease of racism is it's baked into this country. So um, as Anthea Butler says in her book uh, White Evangelical Racism, it's a feature, not a bug. 
so racism is structural and um, religion and specifically Christianity in this country has, has fostered and maintained it. Um, I, should, I should clarify that in saying this, I'm not trying to claim that Christianity is intrinsically racist. Right? I approach the study of religion and of Christianity as, an, as a historian, which means that I, I don't try to weigh in on the truth claims of any particular um, religion or to say that those truth claims are right or wrong. Um, instead, in, um, in both my scholarship and my teaching, I'm, I'm interested in how religion has been in, interpreted, enacted, and um, practiced by humans who do things that can be really wonderful, uh, but also things that are, that are really terrible with it. So yeah, like, like in this country, there are important histories of Americans who have drawn on Christianity to um, advocate for justice and to help others. But also critical to this country's history is the, um, the living legacy, uh, you know, as you put it, of, of white Americans using Christian justifications to create, um, to create racist systems that harm and disadvantage people of color. So, you know, whether that's um, the system of slavery, which was justified as a way to Christianize people of African descent, um, or the residential school system um, to supposedly teach indigenous children how to be um, quote unquote, civilized Christians. Uh, or as we talked about earlier, Chinese exclusion, which was supposed to um, ensure the, the sanctity of the nation as Christian. I think the figure of the heathen really underlies all of these justifications. And so I, I guess I would say that I think we need to know this history and um, the relationship between thinking or claiming that we're helping and actually harming uh, to know how to do better. What's your hope for your readers? I hope for my readers. Um, yeah, let's, I guess my hope for my readers is um, what, I, what I mentioned earlier, which is that they come out of this book asking hard questions and thinking about and being able to identify the ways in which this history continues to resonate today so that they can see like in the media, you know, the media around Ukraine, the media around COVID, um, the same kinds of language, the same kinds of tropes reiterating, and then to have conversations, you know, in churches or in um, academic settings or just with each other about, you know, what does it mean that this history underlies so much of what we see and do today? And what can we do about that? I mean, like I said earlier, I'm a historian, so I've, I've often just given the answer like, well, I don't, you know, I just do the history, but I, I would really love for readers to think with each other about where we go from here. You know, what do we do from here? Well, our guest is Dr. Catherine Jen Lum. The book is Heathen, Religion and Race in History. If you want to stay more connected with uh, Catherine, follow her on Twitter. Uh, Catherine, thank you for making time to have this conversation. And thank you, despite the difficult nature of it, for uh, inviting us to re-examine our past and present and how it affects our future. Thank you so much. And thank you for the really thoughtful questions. I, I appreciate that so much. 
We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Have you ever wanted to study the life and teachings of Baptist ministers whose work in civil and human rights changed the world? Have you ever wanted to read and watch other speeches given by Dr. King? Are you concerned of the way King's life, teachings, and legacy are used by contemporary political and religious leaders? Are you a local pastor or church leader and want to take an evening course at a seminary? Apply today to audit the life and theology of Martin Luther King Jr. at Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, taught by Dr. Lewis Brogdon. Visit bsk.edu backslash mlk to learn more. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Central Seminary, the CBF Church Benefits, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.